All right. Well, you can uh, you can turn to Ephesians. I'll be reading that in a moment, and also with your shorter catechism, you can look at uh, question number sixty-four and sixty-five. This is part one. I'm going to have to uh, do two questions today, and then I'll do the same two next week. But we'll be looking at them in a different way, which I'll explain in a minute. So last week in this sermon series on the Westminster Catechism, we came to the section that deals with the fifth commandment, which is question 63. So let's confess the answer to this question together. Question 63, which is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. I must say that there is so much scripture that is related to this commandment that whenever I preach on this subject, it's always hard to know how to organize what I'm going to talk about. A few years ago when I preached through the larger catechism and did much more details on on this commandment, I had 19 sermons on the fifth commandment. Because there's so many different relationships and things that it speaks to. If you were here last week, I explained to you a sort of an overview of this commandment and that how we are to look at it. If you really take it to heart, then it applies to so many areas of our life if we're looking at it as those who want to please God, who are eager to please God, who want His counsel to come to us we will see that it not only speaks to children, but also to parents. You don't say, oh, well, it just says to uh, children to honor your father and mother. Well, if it says that, it has something to say to fathers and mothers too. And uh, we'll, we'll look at it that way. Because if children are to honor their parents, that means that parents have a huge responsibility to live in an honorable way and to care for their children. And not only that, but when we remember that God wants children to honor their parents, if we're those, again, who are eager to please God, then it will cause us to recognize that he wants us to honor anyone who has legitimate authority that is like a parent. Governors, magistrates, policemen, teachers, pastors, elders, managers at work, older people, people with skills, We could go on and on and on. And it even reminds us that we should treat our equals with appropriate honor. In all our relationships, we are, as we saw in Romans 13, 7, to render honor to whom honor is due. That's our basic calling in this commandment. You remember how we saw that honor refers to weight. Okay, the word is related to the word for weight. What it boils down to is that you are to regard the place of authority that God has given to those who are in your life. Remember, we saw that all authority comes from God as well. So that means that if someone in authority over you tells you to do something, and it is something in the area where they have legitimate authority to speak, and uh, if it's something that is lawful, then it's something that you ought to obey. You ought to regard their words. And really, you ought to regard what anyone says as important. You shouldn't discount what anyone says. 
whether they're over you in authority or not. But the person who is in authority has greater weight and they ought to have greater weight. Remember the illustration that I used for, for children? If you have a, a little brother or a little sister that tells you, you know, go and clean your room, then you maybe aren't going to listen to them. But if your mother says go and clean your room, you better do it because she has weight. She has authority that your little sister doesn't have. So when we look at the commandment, this commandment and all that it speaks to, you can say, you can see why I say that I always find it hard to know where to start. Like, do we start with people that are in authority? Do we start with people under authority? Do we start with, you know, do we do children or elders in the church? Or, you know, there's so many things. As we're doing the shorter catechism, I'm, I don't plan to do 19 sermons um, this time, but more of a summary is what we're going to get here. And what I've decided to do then is look first this week at how to be a godly superior. And then next week, at how to be a godly inferior. <clears throat> now, often when I say those words, people say, what? Inferior? Superior? We shouldn't talk like that. It's something that is offensive in our society. Well, we live in a day when people are super sensitive about calling people superiors and inferiors. And I'm using those terms deliberately. Why? Because although the offense that those, these designations arose because of abusive authorities, our society has overreacted so much that we have become anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment, rebellious. We don't want to acknowledge that anyone is our superior and superiors don't want to be superiors. They don't want to acknowledge that anyone is their inferior. We live in a time when legitimate authorities are not honored, and the only people who are honored are entertainers, you know, athletes, actresses, actors, and performers. And uh, now that, of course, is something that we see is gradually changing because our society has become very disordered and we're more and more seeing people now start to turn like they did when everyone was doing right in their own eyes to want somebody to come and set everything straight. We're seeing people starting to give themselves over completely to you be our king, you tell us what to do and we'll do whatever you say, you fix our problems and we'll listen to whatever you say. So these things, again, they go through cycles. But we're coming from a time where there's been the kind of anti-establishment sort of thing, the like nobody is, you know, everybody's equals, no one's in authority, we, don't, we despise authority. We've kind of got a mess now where it's kind of, there's places where we have authority that's the wrong kind of authority. There's other places where we ought to have authority and we don't. It's just a, it's, it's a mess, really. Parents, civil rulers, pastors and elders and other legitimate authorities don't, though, by and large today, exercise authority that has been given them by God. Say, to correct violations of God's law that happens right under their eyes. A parent will let his child abuse property or a magistrate will allow or even endorse abortion or sexual perversion. Elders will avoid the proper exercise of church discipline. And at the same time, those in authority will sometimes use the authority that they have in illegitimate ways, such as spending money for things that they shouldn't, 
father goes out gambling, a mother goes out on a shopping spree, or magistrates authorizing spending that plunges our society into debt, giving it to their friends, you know, giving them a big big check for doing some project that they have that isn't near that valuable, or persecuting those who are doing what is right, such as doctors that won't perform an abortion. They get persecuted by those in authority over them. Shouldn't be persecuted for doing what's right, or they won't. They will get um, disciplined for not helping uh, with, with assisted suicides or sex change operations or whatever it is. Uh, Richard Vandervart, you know, joined our our presbytery because he was excluded from his denomination for his biblical views on creation and sexuality. Those over him are using their authority illegitimately. And of course, there are even those who use their superior position to sexually abuse those that they ought to be protecting, which is a gross crime indeed. So please understand that we're not talking about abuse of authority when we speak about superiors and inferiors. We're talking about recognizing the distinctions that God, not man, has made in rank among individuals. As we saw last week, the clear evidence that God wants there to be rank, that he wants some people to be over other people, is the way that he created the world where we bring forth little children that are helpless and have to have their diapers changed. And they have to be taught and guided. They can't even speak. They don't have the ability to speak unless they hear us speak. They learn what words mean By us using words, there's a real authority there. Every word that they learn when they're a little kid comes from us. It comes by authority. And uh, so there is this kind of way that God has made the world that we're not independent people that just have our own thing. We're dependent upon each other. God made it that way on purpose. Now, Before we move on to look more at what a godly superior is, Let's first confess the answers to questions 64 and 65 in our catechism, and then we'll have our scripture reading. So question 64, what is required in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors inferiors or equals what is forbidden in the fifth commandment the fifth commandment forbiddeth the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongeth to everyone in their several places and relations now you can see here how helpfully the catechism applies the fifth commandment both to those who are in authority and likewise to those who are under authority. All of us, whether in authority or under authority, are to seek to uphold legitimate authority structure in our relationships, to preserve the honors, it says, and perform the duties that belong to us, and not to neglect or do anything that would somehow diminish the honor that, uh, and duty that is supposed to be there. That's the heart of the matter. So this is all brought out very beautifully for us in the book of Ephesians. I have chosen Ephesians 5.15 through 6.9 for our scripture reading. In this passage, 
there are three relationships which involve where you have persons leading and persons submitting. And in each one of them, both the ones in authority and the ones under authority are called to preserve and honor and perform the duties belonging to each of them in those relationships. And in every case, it is stressed that they are to do this in the Lord or as to the Lord. It is so beautifully presented to us. May God's Spirit help us to see so that, see it so that we will find that what is presented here to be beautiful. Um, I've, I've mentioned this to some of you before that I've been shocked before. I, w- I was shocked initially when I was doing uh, marriage counseling. And on several occasions, really, really more than several occasions, I, I had couples that came that were having marriage problems. And sometimes they were maybe not even in our church, but there were maybe kind of Christian people that had come for counseling. And when I laid out what the Bible says about authority and submission and marriage, it, it was always surprising. It, 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 I, I could hardly believe it that women who were professed to be feminists of some sort that would come in that counseling situation, when they heard that, they would say, they get dreamy-eyed and say, that's what I really always wanted. I say, really? <laughs> I think that's what I said the first time. Really? That's what you always wanted? When they heard what the Bible actually says about what men are to do, what women are to do. Because it's beautiful. And sometimes it's very sad because if the, their husband was not willing to, to do that, it sometimes didn't happen. Sometimes it did. But I, 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 was, uh, I kept being surprised and then it happened enough that I, I got more used to it. But um, Listen eagerly though as I read this to you because it's, it's, it's lovely what is spoken of here. It's Ephesians 5.15 through 6.9. Ephesians 5.15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them. Giving up, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. What I want to do today is help you who are superiors, you who have authority in whatever way you may have it, to do your part in upholding the honor that God has given you. It probably seems a little weird and a little selfish because to think of, to think about upholding your own honor, like I'm supposed to uphold my own honor, isn't that you know I can understand why you would say that, but you know if you had lived in ancient Rome or Greece or even in Canada 150 years ago, it wouldn't seem so weird to you, but because you live here in this present time, it seems like an odd thing to do to uphold. My own honor? It is, but it is something that our passage shows us that God calls you to do. And I think once you see what it involves, it will not seem strange and it will not at all seem selfish to you. If you understand, it will seem the opposite of selfish. In a way, you're in a better place perhaps to understand what is taught here in God's word what it means that for someone than what someone say in ancient Rome or Greece or from Canada 150 years ago would not be in as good a position because they would say, well, yeah, of course I ought to uphold my honor. Of course, if I'm, I'm a leader, I should uphold my honor. But then they would not listen to what that honor is supposed to look like and how that they're supposed to exercise that authority as a parent or a master or a king or a husband or whatever it is. Their understanding of authority, in other words, would be skewed. So you have the advantage of coming at it from a fresh biblical perspective where this stuff is kind of like not even, look, not even hardly thought of. So let's begin with the obvious. Our reading in Ephesians shows that those God has put in authority are to exercise their authority. That, 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 pretty obvious, isn't it? They should exercise their authority. Verse 15 through 21 shows that submitting to each other is part of being filled with the Spirit. Okay, we talk about being filled with the Spirit. We think about somebody, you know, fluttering around or something. It's, it's not, that's not what it is. Um, verse 15 through 21 shows us. Verse 15 through 17, first of all, calls us to live wisely. Not just to follow what everyone around us is doing but to understand what the will of the Lord is. A spirit-filled person understands God's will through his word 
and they then live in a different way. Uh, You see that verse 17 says, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what God wants you to do in the world. That's the way of wisdom, wisdom, knowing what is the right thing to do and the good way to go. And then in verse 18, it goes on to tell you to be filled with the spirit says do not be drunk with wine but be filled with the spirit if you look at what it says before verse 15 you can see that it was telling you not to have fellowship with the world not to engage in the world's shameful behavior as christians we are to live lives that are markedly different there's a huge deficiency in the church today we don't do this we should not be getting drunk living in fornication, watching sensual movies, not just talking about X-rated ones either, dressing in sensual clothes, all that sort of thing. Instead, we're to understand, to understand what the will of the Lord is. Very often, Christians take pride that they just fit in with the world perfectly. People can't even tell that I'm a Christian. They think that's good. And so now, at verse 18, it tells you, not to be drunk with wine. That's the will of the Lord. But to be filled with the Spirit. That's one of the ways that you're different. So instead of living under the influence of wine, or sensuality, or anger, or whatever else, we're to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who writes God's law in our hearts. He stirs us up to love the will of God, which is revealed in the Bible, and then to do the will of God. He gives us the ability to do the will of God. So, okay, so what does Ephesians tell us that we will do when we're filled with the Spirit? Well, there are three participles that explain what a person does when filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember uh, from high school days or whatever, what a participle is. Um, it's a word that ends with I-N-G. And uh, our phrase has a word in ing, and uh, it's used to modify an action of some kind. In this case, to modify the action of being filled with the Spirit. So, what are the three participles that tell us what we are to do when we're filled with the Spirit instead of running in the way of the world? Well, the first one is verse 19 speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Second one, verse 20 giving thanks always to all, for all things to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. The third one is verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now let's look at these three participles. The first two speak particularly about loving and honoring God. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord, refers to what? Praising Him together as His people. And then there is giving thanks to him always for all things. This becomes very meaningful and rich when you think about what Paul has been writing about it all the way through Ephesians. He began by talking about how God has displayed the riches of his grace in saving us. He prayed that we would be able to grasp the wonder of this grace and that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the 
width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. We talked about that in the earlier service. He tells us about how Jesus gave himself for us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. How he purchased our forgiveness with his blood. How he has made us alive by his spirit so that we could do good works and live godly lives. And now Paul is telling us that instead of being drunk with the world, we should be praising God with each other and giving thanks for the new, for the salvation that we have in Christ. We should be promoting our glorious God and talking to each other about his grace and about the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Our whole lives should be about promoting him. That's what we will be like if we are filled with the Spirit. Okay, so you can think about that. It always talks about our, our duty to God first, just like the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about our duty to God, and the next six are about our duty to our neighbor. This is set up the same way. So it begins with praising God, thanking God for all that he's done for us. And then how about the neighbor part? Well, there's this third participle that speaks about how we will live in harmony with each other if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that we will submit to one another in the fear of God. Each one of us is going to take our God-given place in every relationship that we have. That is the outcome. I told you before that our society recoils at the very thought of submitting, which maybe explains why the church is so spiritually weak. If being filled with the Spirit means that we submit to one another and we have embraced the notion that one person submitting to another is an undesirable and unjust thing along with the world, then what are we thinking like? Are we thinking according to the will of God? Are we being wise and understanding what the will of God is? Or are we living according to the world? We're living according to the world. It's clear that we're not understanding what the will of God is, nor are we filled with the Holy Spirit. We're more in agreement with what the world thinks about this in that case. We need to therefore start understanding what the will of the Lord is, and we need to start submitting to one another in the fear of God, because that is what it is to do the will of God and be filled with the Spirit. The antipathy has had so much influence on us that some Christians write off what Paul says in this section about wives submitting to their husbands and servants to their masters as Paul's personal opinions. So these people obviously don't believe the Bible is the word of God. But others who recognize that what Paul writes is God's word, they therefore recognize that you know, they ought to obey it and they kind of want to obey it but they don't like it, and so they try to twist verse 18 to mean that, where it says submit to one another, that we submit equally in all directions. Okay, Every relationship has mutual submission, equal submission. Because it says, hey, look, it says submit to one another. That's, that's how, they, how, how it's interpreted. So, so that even though it says that wives are to submit to their husbands specifically, that husbands are just as much to submit to their wives. And that even though children are to submit to their parents, implication, parents are just as much to submit to their children. And the same with masters and servants. But when you look at what it actually says in our text, then it's very clear that just like the fifth commandment, the submission and the honoring goes in the direction of inferior to superior. Again, we don't like those terms. We don't want those terms. We don't want those distinctions. 
The inferior, though, is to submit to the superior in every case. That's the way the passage was always understood until this modern antipathy about one person being in a position of submission to another is being considered wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that trouble, there was not trouble with submitting, that it's not always been a problem for people to do that in every age ever since the fall. Societies, like I mentioned before, tend to shift back and forth from authoritarian to permissiveness. They go from focusing on freedom to focusing on law and order. And then they go back to freedom again. Because we're sinful and selfish, societies fall apart. Authoritarian societies also fall apart under their own weight. They become increasingly oppressive and they end up provoking rebellion. When that happens, the rebellion leads to corruption and disorder that is so great that then there's a cry for leadership again. Then they get even more oppressive authority. So that's the way it's always been. But I don't think there's ever been a time when so many Christians have tried to reinterpret what Ephesians 5 and 6 actually says, because they don't like it. Let's just say that it's a very forced and unnatural interpretation that is very wrong to say that when it says to submit to one another, that it goes in both directions equally. That's not at all the way this passage is laid out. What it's saying is in every relationship, there should be submission to one another. You should be, you should be living in submission to whoever's in authority over you. There should always be submission among God's people in the different relationships that we have. That means that if we're going to understand what God's will is and to be filled with the Spirit today, we need to understand what it means to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. And those who are in authority need to understand how they are to lead in a way that is honorable and that brings glory to the Lord. How to love like Christ does. When you understand this, then you'll see how beautiful authority really is when it is exercised according to God's will. Next week, we'll look at the submission that inferiors are called to give to their superiors. But for the remainder of our time this week, we'll look at how superiors are to promote and maintain the honor and duty that God has given to them. Okay, so superiors. And again, I, I address you as superiors, wherever you have that kind of authority. I know it seems weird to be called that, but superiors, you are to lead the same way that Jesus Christ does. As it says at the very end of our text to masters in Ephesians 6, 9, you are to lead as one who recognizes that you have a master in heaven. That changes everything. Paul has been telling us what our master in heaven is like all the way through Ephesians. What's he like? What is he like? He's the one that lavished grace on you. Grace upon grace upon grace. He's the one who died on the cross for you. This does not mean that he submits to us, though, does it? He is our master, very plainly so. He takes responsibility to rule over us very seriously. He takes responsibility for us. Like a master in the workplace, he directs our work. He leads us to do God's will and he rebukes us when we don't. 
The whole idea of exercising your authority the way Christ exercises his authority is described most fully in the first submission relationship that Paul talks about, the relationship of husband and wife. You can see in 523 how it says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. So it doesn't go both directions. He just told the wives that they should obey their husbands as they obey Christ. So there is real authority and real headship here. But there is something extraordinary about this headship. It is not, I say it is not, the ugly kind of headship that is the only kind of headship that our world knows about and the kind that they always talk about whenever they talk about authority and headship. The kind where the one in authority who gets to make all the decisions makes all of them so they come out to the advantage of that authority. The authority of a Christian husband is the authority that he exercises rather for the benefit of his wife. It is authority that you exercise the same way Christ exercised his authority, where you pour yourself out for the sake of the one that is under your care. Just as it says in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And again, you know what Christ did. He did not come to be served. He did not, he, he did not use his authority to get everyone to serve him. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to provide for us, to pay the debt that we could not pay, the penalty of our sin. He gave all that he had to do that. This is the core of the whole thing. This is the heart of what every superior is supposed to do in every relationship. He is supposed to lay down his life for those under his care, to pour out his life for their sake. There, is to, there are to be no limits to his love. That is what a superior is called to do. Nothing less than that. You know how Jesus cared for us in every way. Before the Lord. Jesus came to deliver us from our enemies. To free us and rescue us from Satan. Superiors are to protect those who are under their care from enemies. To rescue them. And largely even by teaching them how to fight. But they are to take bullets for those that are under their protection and care. Jesus came to heal our diseases and to give us eternal life and resurrection from the dead. Superiors are to care about the health and welfare of those under their authority, to see that they are well provided for. In 1 Timothy, it says that a man who will not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Jesus came also to sanctify us. So it says in verse 26, to give, us a holy, to give us the Holy Spirit to make us holy, to lead us in living for God, in obeying God. His commandments were not selfish commandments, but he commanded us to do the will of God. God tells fathers that they are to command their household to keep the way of the Lord. And he tells magistrates that they are to uphold the, the law of justice in the land. Now you can see that this last idea that he commands us to do the will of God is brought out when fathers are addressed in Ephesians 6, 4. After telling children to obey their fathers in the Lord, 
Ephesians 6, 4 says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. You know how selfish authorities behave. They're cranky and they're demanding. Their demands are all for their own self-interest. They got irritated about something or whatever. It's a kind of authority that has caused our society to hate the very idea of submitting to anyone. Like asking for abuse to have someone that's in authority. That's not at all what we're talking about here. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That means that you use your authority to feed them with God's grace. You teach them to trust in God's promises and you command them in God's ways. You admonish them to keep God's commandments. As God told Abraham, again, you command your household to keep the way of the Lord. Interestingly, this is exactly what Paul is doing in in this very teaching that we're reading here. He is using his authority as a Christian apostle to right here in our text to tell us what the will of God is to command us in the way of the Lord. He's calling us, as we have seen, to be wise and to understand what the will of the Lord is. That's what a father is to do. That's what anyone in authority is to do according to their particular place of calling. All who are in authority. A father and husband in the sphere of his children and his wife is to see that his family does the will of God. He's responsible for that. He takes responsibility. He bears that responsibility. A minister with the elders is to see that God's will is done in the church. Okay, to provide in spiritual nurture and training for those in the church, to see that that's done. A master is to see that those who work under his authority honor the Lord and that he, he is to provide training and to provide a living for those who are working under his leadership. A leader in government is to see that God's will is done in the community, and he is to lead the military to protect the citizens. And all of them are to do this sacrificially, pouring out their lives for those who are under their care. They are to do this as those who are deliberately trying to be the same kind of master that Jesus is to them, remembering they have a master in heaven. In fact, as is clear in Ephesians 6, 4, they're actually exercising his nurture and his admonition. It's the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or the training and discipline, as it says in the version I read. A superior is to do this very deliberately and consciously as God's agent. It is as if the Lord is saying to superiors, I want you to provide my care to those that I have put under your authority. They are to know my provision through you, my love through you, my protection through you, my instruction through you, my correction through you, my guidance through you, my nurture through you. And when you do this with a conscious awareness of how Christ has provided for you, it will completely transform the way that you exercise your authority. In fact, what you think of Christ in the gospel shows in how you lead. You can see what you think of Christ by the way that you lead others. And now I want to finish up by looking at three ways to lead. Two wrong ways and then the right way. 
First, there is the shirker. This is the man who does not look after his household or his kingdom or whatever he has authority over, his business, his congregation, whatever it is, whatever it is that he has authority over. He doesn't want to be bothered. Too much responsibility. I don't want responsibility. Sometimes he may take partial responsibility. For example, he might provide for them financially, but take no interest in teaching them the word of God. Or vice versa. Might be busy to teach them, like lead family worship, that sort of thing, but he doesn't provide for them financially. Or he doesn't call them to repentance when they have sinned. Maybe he's great at teaching them Bible stories, telling them about God and all this stuff, but when they go and do wrong, he, he doesn't, want to, doesn't want to get tangled up with that. It's not a not pleasant thing to do. He just keeps, or, or ordinarily though, the shirker, he, he just kind of pulls out all together. <laughs> he goes, gets involved in his hobbies or his work or maybe even, uh, maybe even reading theology books, you know, but he does not look after his household. That's not what he does. Sadly, some men who are otherwise godly men are like this in managing their homes. In other words, they may be very nice people and they may be even very responsible in lots and lots of different ways in their life. Jacob was like that. It took him a really long time to deal with idols in his own household. He didn't give leadership in his family the way he should. He left them quarreling. His wives competing with each other about which of them could have the most children. They said, here, take my concubine. He said, okay. Here, take my concubine. Okay. And he, you know, he just, he just, he, he was a shirker. He didn't take responsibility to lead. He should have led in getting into that double marriage in the first place. It shows up with men like David. We're told that David's rebellious sons were rebellious for a reason. 1 Kings 1.6, we're told the reason. It says of David's son Adonijah that his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? Never confronted his son. He just let him go. Like, just do whatever his son wanted. He, he was a shirker. And in this passage we read in 1 Samuel 8, that we read in 1 Samuel 8, we saw it with Samuel's sons. Samuel, he was a godly man. He led God's people. He confronted God's people about their sin, but not his sons. He just shirked, let them go. Verse three, it says, they did not walk in his, Samuel's ways, but turned aside after dishonest game, took bribes and perverted justice. How would Samuel have these guys serving as priests living that way? He didn't care. What was the deal? Samuel had apparently followed the example of his mentor, Eli, who did not correct his sons either. They too ended up being selfish, ungodly men that ruined their, the priesthood legacy of the family. The time of Eli and Samuel was a day of shirking fathers. It was a time of great disorder, as we saw, where, as we read in Judges 21-25, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So children did whatever was right in their own eyes. The fathers just looked down, whatever, you know. All this led the people to want a king to come and straighten us out. Look, your sons are messed up. Everybody's messed up. Give us a king like the nations. We'll have order then. At least we'll have law and order. That's what we want. We'll be able to go to war. When we get called to war, everybody won't say, oh, you guys look after yourself. 
they'll, they'll have to obey. That's what they wanted. Um, so ungodly permissiveness leads to ungodly dominance, which is kind of an interesting thing. This brings us then to the next sort of wrong superior. Next, there is the dictator. So you have the shirker, and then you have the dictator, kind of the opposite. This is the fellow who supposes that leadership is an opportunity for personal gain. I'm in charge. I can, I can make everything go my way because I'm in charge. That's what the dictator thinks. Notion that a leader is to sacrifice and to serve others is totally alien to this guy's way of thinking. Those under his care are not protected by him. They're to be his shield, shields and to protect him. They need to be protected from him, actually. He's supposed to protect them. This is the spirit of the father who would molest his own children. This fellow is so full of himself that he feels that all people who are under his authority are there for his pleasure and comfort. That's their purpose. You're there for me, he says to those under. I'm in charge. You are to do what I want. They're peons. They're tools at his own disposal. Many of you have suffered under leaders like that. This is a superior like like the king that Samuel warned Israel about in 1 Samuel 8 that we read. A king like the nations. The kind that Jesus told about who call themselves servants, benefactors, but who only pretend to be benefactors. Sometimes they even, we see this in our society, they create problems. Oh, there's a terrible problem here. Look to us, we'll fix it. Give us all your resources and we can fix this. That's, that's where it goes. They, they actually look for a crisis so that they can come in and save everybody. And people fall for it. They fall for it again and again and again. Samuel told the people that a king like the nations have would tax them and that he would take their sons and daughters as servants to run before him. See, everybody works for the king. They're there for the king because he's in charge. And to look after his palace, to take care of his crops and all of the rest. He would take more and more land, more and more business and so on. Interestingly, the people still were very insistent at this point because everything was so chaotic that they wanted a king like the nations had. They were running with the world instead of understanding what the will of the Lord was. They were tired of all the chaos that they had experienced because of their ungodliness and they felt that a king would give them some order and prosperity. And it was true in a way, but the law and order they got was the kind of law and order that you have when you're oppressed, <laughs> not the kind you have when you have liberty. You're always working for this selfish master, but yeah, there's order. And prosperity, what kind of prosperity was it? They often promise prosperity. It's always kind of going to come. It's going to come. But gradually, all the resources are, are like, like a vort. They, they all go to that dictator. Everything goes to the dictator. Saul, of course, was the king that they got, <laughs> that Samuel told him about. Saul, the first king. We see his selfishness in the way he treated David. He became jealous of David, younger man than he. And uh, when he became jealous of David, he didn't hesitate to use his armies for his own personal interest. He used the armies 
of the Lord of the nation that God had given him to rule to pursue an innocent man that God had chosen to be the next king. That's what the dictator does. That's the ultimate in selfish authority. You use your military to oppress your people and keep them down so they won't challenge your authority or make you uncomfortable. Instead of trying to bring out strength and leadership in the people that are under your authority. Many people in our society have experienced fathers, bosses, or even church leaders like this. They're the ones who have given authority a bad name. Some people cannot think of superiors in any other way than as dictators. But now we come to the proper kind of authority that we will call the shepherd. As a father, David was a shirker. But as king, he was a shepherd. He was exemplary as a king. That's why God chose him to be an exemplary king. What made him so great as a king is that he always remembered that his authority as king came from God. He almost always remembered that. (laughs) Not quite always. But more than most kings, David remembered that. He used his authority not for his own selfish purposes, but for the good of his subjects. He led them in God's laws to do God's will. His authority that he exercised was God's authority in that sense. He taught them to respond to God. He protected them and he poured his life out for them all to the glory of his father in heaven. When he fought battles, it was not for his own glory, but it was because he was incensed that the enemies that, of God were, were harming the Lord's heritage, the Lord's people. But of course, let's move beyond David to David's son. The most wonderful example of all of the shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ who told us what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he meant that. That's what we have seen today. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what you're to do for those under your care. In whatever way you have been given authority, it is so unlike Jesus to shirk responsibility. He would have never gone to the cross if he was a shirker. Jesus would not have died on the cross. And it was so unlike him to use his authority in a selfish way. Again, he would never have gone to the cross if he was a selfish dictator. It was his way to say, I am here for you. And to really mean that. Not like Jesus warned us about the the Gentiles that say, we're your benefactors and it's all a lie just so they can control you. No, he said, not so with you. Let the one who is uh, the one in authority be the servant of all. If you're a superior of any kind, it's your responsibility to represent him, the Lord's leadership, to represent him with that kind of leadership. My life for yours. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's how it's supposed to look like. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And let me say that you want your children above all things to learn to respond to God. 
not so much to obey you, but to be responsible and independent as those who obey God. You want them to grow up into that. Now, you don't start that way. With a little child, you teach them like very, very firm obedience. They learn to obey you. They're just little children. They, you, if you tell them to come to you, they should come right away. If you tell them it's time to go, they should put away what they're doing and come without complaining, without arguing, disputing, coming right away. They need to learn that, that obedience to authority. But all through the years, you're leading them to do this for God, not for you. So that when they get older, then they're answering to God. And they're, they're, they're seeking to please God. And they may even challenge you and say, I don't agree with you because of God. Now, if they aren't in that mode, then they'll, say, they'll just be rebellious and say, well, I don't agree with you. I don't like it. But if they're saying, I want to understand what the will of God is, that's what you're wanting to do. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. You want to see them take initiative to do God's will to do things that you never even thought of because they have the goal of honoring him. And for those who work under you, treat them as one who remembers that you have a master in heaven. Provide for them the way you want your master to provide for you. Counsel them, give them guidance and instruction the way that you want your master in heaven to give counsel to you. Be a shepherd Be merciful, be patient the way you want him to be merciful and patient with you. That's the way of a godly superior. It's not something you should draw back from, nor is it something you should seize to your own advantage. It's something that you should undertake with fear and trembling and much prayer before the Lord your God because it is something that he has given you to do for him. To really love people and to love them as Christ loves them. Please stand and let's ask God for help. Lord, this is certainly one of those things that we cannot do without you. You're the one who enables us to be able to to live as a godly leader, godly superior. We pray, Lord, that as such, that we would be those who pour our lives out for those under our care, that we really would love people and care for them and want to help them. Father, we're such selfish creatures. We either want to shrug off our responsibility and take our ease, or we want to have everyone to fall under our own selfish whims and to serve us, and to make us comfortable. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us, because we have misrepresented you. Our world has no idea, very little idea, of what godly authority is really supposed to look like. It's not seen anywhere in the world. It's rarely seen in the church. Father, we see all the time that those who have positions in the church find out that they're predators instead of servants. Again and again, Father, It's very, very grievous and vexing. And it really makes a terrible testimony to the world. Father, where is your honor? Where is your glory seen? We pray, Father, that in our homes, in our church, that you would give us men who would be shepherds. Men who would not shirk 
and men who would not be selfish dictators, men who would, who would make it so that everyone's glad that they're leading. We know that who would want to trade places with Jesus? Who would want to take his place of leadership and be the one that had to go to the cross and be the one that had to bear all the burden? Father, truly, if we're the right kind of authority, people will be glad that we're doing it instead of them. If we're the wrong kind of authority, then they'll all wish that they could be in that position too. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, and that you would cause us to be people who who know what it really is to, to live a godly life. Father, may we do it with joy because we do it for you. It's not like it's supposed to be a miserable thing either, even for the one that is in authority. Truly, we will be miserable if we're a dictator or if we're a shirker. But if we will do the will of the Lord, understand and do that, that's where our joy will be made complete. When we really learn to give ourselves for others like our Lord Jesus did, we'll know Jesus better when we do that. And we'll be living with purpose. We'll be showing people what he is like. And we'll be blessing people. We'll be blessing the people that are under our care. And Father, what a wonderful thing that will be. What joy it will bring to us. What joy it will bring to our family. What joy it will bring to everyone around us. We see how David's sons were so irritated with him because he never would deal with anything. He just let them go. He let them quarrel and quarrel. He let them rape their sister. And, you know, just every, it was very, very frustrating And they became defiant and rebellious. We see, Lord, how they became like Absalom, selfish dictator type, because David was a shirker in his family. But we thank you so much for David's example as king. And how we pray, Lord, that we would be that we would be like he was as a king, that we would be like Jesus. Oh, Father, help us and guide us. Give us strength. We pray that the beauty of the Lord would be upon us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 100. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Amen.